You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. What is your opinion on women earning less than men in tennis? And what do you think is this based on? Thank you. Well, I don't know. I don't know what it is based on in soccer or golf or modeling. I don't know. Why do women earn more than men in in the fashion industry? Well, I don't know. But then again, we don't talk all day long about salary difference. <laughs> Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 547 of this podcast. Today is January 29th, 2023. And that was a little bit of audio, which I provided the translation for, of Rafael Nadal, a Spanish tennis player currently ranked number two in the world in singles by the Association of Tennis Professionals being asked about the pay gap between men and women who play tennis. And he says, I don't I don't know why there would be a pay gap. Also, I don't know why there's a pay gap in these other fields as well. Sometimes there's pay gaps in the fashion industry. I, I think women make more in the fashion industry than they do in tennis. I think they make more than men do in the fashion industry. I, I don't know why it is. I'm not sure. All, all I know is that we men don't spend all our time complaining about how much less we make, which is, you know, like that's, that's a rather sarcastic, but in the same sense, appropriate response to the complaining about the pay gap. I mean, in all honesty, I think what he's getting at is maybe the people who are not sitting around complaining about how much less they're paid are making more money, in part because they're not sitting around complaining about how much le- how much less they're paid. That could be, right? There, there could be a relationship there, possibly. Now, I, that breaks down, obviously, also at a certain point. Because you could be doing the same work, but for less pay. But then what is the work that these sports ball players are actually doing? Like what, what is it that they're doing that is making them so much money when they get to the top of their game? They're not just playing a sport, either well or not so well. They are also selling products. They're selling advertising. They're selling endorsements. They are selling tickets. They're getting people to show up to watch them play. And those people are buying condiments and drinks and jerseys and other paraphernalia. Those people are watching commercials. Those people are potentially seeing what those athletes are wearing and wanting to buy those brands. You know what? You know what it really comes down to, in my opinion? When, it, when we're talking sports versus the fashion industry versus women buying clothes or men buying clothes for women, I think what it comes down to is what is communicated by a man 
endorsing a product or a service or a brand, what is communicated when a man endorses versus when a woman endorses? And are those kinds of endorsements the same? Do we perceive them to be the same? Should we perceive them to be the same? Now, feminists will say, if we don't perceive them to be the same, that's because of the patriarchy. That's actually inequality and oppression of a sort. Even if the woman who is at the top of her sport or her profession, if she's not into sports, but she is a professional woman, she went to college, she's now an executive, she's now a manager, she's now a doctor or a lawyer or what have you. If she's at the top of her profession, her field, and she's not making as much as men do, she's still making a lot of money. But if she's not making the exact same amount as the man who is at the top of his field or at the top of his profession, well, then that's unfair. Now, suppose we fix that, right? Suppose we fix that and we apply price floors and price ceilings from the government. The government takes control of the means of production in a sense, because now that they are telling companies what they can pay or what they can't pay. You can't pay over this much to men because you're paying only this much to women. You have to pay at least this much to women because you're paying at least this much to men. Now they've assumed responsibility for how to still make that business profitable. If one of the metrics at the disposal of the business owner and the business manager was how much they pay to people or how little they pay to people. If I can't pay over a certain amount to men because we only pay that much to women, well, then now I can't get the most qualified men interested, motivated, committed. If I have to pay at least this much to the men or the women for that matter, well, then I've eroded my basis for hiring people with low experience or an unproven track record. Also too, my costs have to go up by that much or my prices have to go up by that much because now everybody's doing that. And if they're having to pay everybody more, well then the cost of their products and services that I'm depending on to provide my costs to my customers at a lower rate, those have to go up. But see, if we fix that supposed problem. Let's uh, let's assume that it is a problem. We fix that problem of the pay gap. Now the government has taken responsibility. Therefore, they have to take control of the means of production more generally. And now we're talking communism. And for that matter, if we move on from that and say we fix that problem, move on from that one to the question of inequality between men and women, when we're talking what women predominantly or disproportionately are able to do. So women are staying home when they get pregnant or when they've given birth. Now we've got to fix that problem and say either A, the men get to stay home when the wife or the fiance or the girlfriend is pregnant. The men, the fathers, they get to stay home if their wife is feeling sick or if she is about to have a baby or she has just had a baby. And that's happening, right? In the interest of consistency, that is increasingly happening where it's not just maternity leave, it's paternity leave as well. But how would it be if we said the other direction? 
Well, the men can't stay home, so neither can you women. You women have to get out there and you have to get after it. And how would it be if we started to say, you know, biologically, anatomically, there are differences between men and women, and we need to level off those differences because they translate to a difference of opportunity in a certain sense and a difference of outcome because this woman, she's able to have babies and the men are not able to have babies, even if they want to, which I don't understand why any man would want to, but oh, just in case they do, they need to be free to. So we've got to experiment and do science, mad science really, but we've got to do science to make it possible for men to get pregnant or carry a baby. And then we're going to have the chest feeding thing. Oh, wait a second. Wait, that that's already happening. That That's already happened and already happening because we are deranged in the West. Our disconnect from the authority of God's word, the more to the point, authority of God himself, our disconnect there has translated into us becoming futile in our thinking. You know, I was just talking with my oldest son yesterday about his psychology class and some discussions that they had. They broke out into small groups to discuss some exercises. And the big question was, after explaining a potential experiment that was going to be conducted, is this ethical or should this experiment be conducted? You know, working on animals, for instance, lab rats or monkeys, for instance, you know, cutting um, you know, holes in their skulls and then, you know, creating lesions on the brain and then having them walk across electrified rails to see if they still get shocked or they perceive a shock if they have lesions on their brain. And it was my son and all the rest were girls. All the, all the rest of the classmates of his in his general psychology class at Ames were girls. And he said it was a little awkward because he's the only guy and it's all girls. But he was the first to speak and he did most of the talking, which is <laughs> not super shocking, I suppose. But he did most of the talking and he was the first to give an answer. That, no, I don't think that's ethical. I don't, why? Why? What's the practical utility of figuring that out? Like, what benefit is there? And if we can't come up with a benefit, then it just seems like it's cruelty to no purpose, right? And so I find that fascinating, right? I find that fascinating for a number of reasons. One of them being that there's a difference, right? He's the homeschool kid coming in in high school, taking this college class, but being the only guy, the only male in a group, he's the first to initiate, the first to speak, the first to make a judgment and say, no, I don't think that's ethical. Why? Right? And to ask the question. To ask the question takes a certain degree of aggressiveness and assertiveness and acceptance of risk and tolerance for danger. Because think of this. Let's imagine this is not a scenario in a psychology class. Let's imagine that this is a real world workplace scenario where some people are doing something that 
is questionable. It's, let's not even just say that it's unethical for sure, but it's ethics, it's morality is questionable. It might not be legal. It might not be uh, considered appropriate if it became public knowledge. And even just you seeing and hearing what's going on on the periphery, you feel uncomfortable. Like, hmm, I don't, I don't know if that's right. What's going on? Now, let's suppose you, you get that far, and you've probably been in situations like that, if you think about it, uh, whether in the workplace or some other social setting. But you have the option to go up and ask, hey, what's going on here? Now, what is it that happens in the movies, by the way, when something fishy is going on, something sneaky, and the guard who's doing their rounds <laughs> comes over and says, hey, you're not supposed to be back here. Yeah, usually that's the part where either the villain or the hero, depending on you know if the guard was a good guy or a bad guy, but what kind of a facility is being guarded, the villain or the hero will probably be clock this guy over the head and drag him out of sight and stow him. You know, if, if, if not killing him, at least knocking him unconscious long enough to finish what needs doing in the facility and get out of there. You know, that's what happens because the question of what are you doing precedes the potential for, no, you can't do that. And if we say from what are you doing to no, you can't do that. And the response is, well, I am going to do it. Who are you? Then you just cut to the chase when you're thinking about it on the front end. Or sometimes if you stumble on somebody who's doing something very unethical and very immoral, you just cut to the chase. We're going to skip right to the part where we fight. And I'm going to try and surprise you, (laughs) the hero says, or the villain says. Before you have a chance to go for your gun or call for help or yell or whatever. Now, if you are thinking through that as a reasonable person would, and all the more, you know, the more unethical, immoral the behavior or activity that's going on, the higher the probability, if it is unethical and immoral, that you asking the question, you will be treated now or disposed of now in an unethical and immoral way. You might be killed. You might be beaten. You might lose your job. You might, you know, fill in the blank. And so that's a risk, right? There's a danger there. And our minds know that intuitively. And so a lot of people, increasingly, if they care more about their own safety and their own quality of life than they do about what's good and what's right, what do they do? They look the other way. They keep on walking. They try to pretend they didn't see that. There's nothing going on because they're just cutting to the chase if their response would be to flee, to run away, to protect themselves first and foremost. Now, what do we do about that? How do we overcome that tendency or that proclivity or that temptation? One way might be to have men in those positions where they're supposed to be guarding. They're supposed to be willing to say no, or what are you doing? Or you're not supposed to be back here. In part because men being physically stronger, faster, 
more aggressive, more assertive. All of these things are related to the presence of testosterone in the body. Testosterone at much higher quantities in men than in women, typically. Now, some women try to take testosterone so that they can be bodybuilders and be stronger than men or whatever. Some decide that they want to be men, and so they take testosterone. Also, there are men who don't have a lot of testosterone, in part because of environmental factors, dietary factors, psychological factors. They've been so beaten down by society, by family, by the people in their social circle. Their body just gives up on producing testosterone. I think this can be multi-generational as well. I think birth control pills have caused women who think or their bodies think that they are on that part of the cycle where they're already pregnant. <laughs> so they don't get pregnant. Uh, research has shown that women who are on the pill report that men with less masculine physical features, facial features, are more attractive to them. Now, why is that? Well, it could be in part because they are not in the best condition to fight. This is why what director James Cameron said about wanting to see six-month-old, you know, six-month pregnant uh, warriors on the screen is so dumb. It's such a dumb thing to say. There are few people who are more vulnerable than a woman who is in her third trimester. If a woman is typically not as strong, not as fast, not as aggressive as a man, a pregnant woman is even slower than she typically would be. And the closer she gets to our due date, the slower she's going to be. It really slows her down. It makes it hard for her to even walk, much less run, much less go through complicated maneuvers to dodge and parry and attack and defend and all that. It's just, and, and, and that's even if she's through all of the morning sickness and the nausea and all that, like if she's nauseous and also is having a hard time even walking, you're now going to put her out there fighting enemies. Like, are you nuts? That's stupid. That's just dumb. But when we see that there are questions like, hey, why do you think that men are paid more than women? We need to be thinking more holistically than just, oh, men and women. They're both people, right? Men and men are human beings and women are human beings. And so there shouldn't be a difference. No, there is a difference. By God's design, you are being really short-sighted to miss it. And you're being really stubborn and willful and foolish if even when it is explained, you say, no, 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 that's just the patriarchy. No. Set aside culture, set aside religion, set aside policies, set aside the economy, set aside financial incentives, set aside all of that. The biology is different. The anatomy is different. The genetics are different. The hormones produced by the body are different. The psychology back and forth with this feedback loop between the mind and the body, what the body is telling the brain and what the mind, which is influenced by social constructs, so-called, or the social imaginary or worldview or religious beliefs or political philosophy. You know, there is a feedback loop where the brain is telling the body, here's what I want from you. And the body is also telling the brain, 
okay, well, here's what I got. <laughs> and so that that's part of why you, you've got to be thinking. You've got to be thinking about what you're eating and what kind of sleep you're getting and whether you're staying hydrated, getting good rest and exercising and what kind of an environment you're in. You've got to be paying attention and making decisions that are wise. <clears throat> also, too, one of the ways that we need to make decisions that are wise is in who we associate with and where we draw strength from. And what I mean by this is that in proportion to the questions that are asked about why men are paid more than women and this or that field and what we should all do about it, in proportion to the increase of those questions is also an increase in the drawing of strength from what is perceived to be the prevailing wisdom of our day, which is cultural Marxism. It is. It, it is cultural Marxism. It's increasingly impatient and outright communism. But the cultural Marxism has been with us for decades now. And that cultural Marxism is where a lot of people derive their sense of identity, their sense of purpose and belonging. If they can get the culture on board with something they want to have or do or be, then they can have it. Also, if they can direct the culture at a potential threat, they can manipulate or bully or threaten or destroy that threat or that target. Perhaps they can take something from that target because that target is prey. Or perhaps they can neutralize that target because that target is threatening to them, is other. They recognize it as other, not my people. <laughs> you are not my kind of people. But actually, if we look at it in that way, if we see it through that lens, virtue signaling takes on a whole new dimension. Peer pressure takes on a whole new dimension. One of the benefits of Going to church, not neglecting the assembly of yourselves together as some do, comes into clearer focus because it has to do with how we resist peer pressure to conform to the pattern of this world, how we stay on mission, trusting in God, following God, serving God. It also makes sense of persecution of Christians, for instance, me being a Christian, my mind goes there. But it makes sense of the persecution of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years. Now, you might think, what is it about Christians that is so inviting of persecution when society is in a certain frame of mind or when a culture is in a certain frame of mind? And I'll tell you, the more decadent, corrupt, cruel, nihilistic, mercenary, godless, vicious a culture gets, the easier it is for each member of that culture to recognize immediately that Christians are other. You are not my people. We are not the same. So now, now we have to figure out, are you potential prey that I can attack, kill, and consume? Not necessarily Literally, I mean, in some cases, yes, but not necessarily literally like 
cannibalism, but in every other sense. Can I attack you? Can I destroy you mentally, emotionally, socially, politically, and then take what you have for myself? Can I take your house? Can I take your business? Can I take your title? Can I take your popularity or the high regard that some people have for you? Can I take that for myself and now use that, leverage that to get what I want? If that's not what I want, then I'll leverage it to get what I actually want. You know, I was listening to a discussion between Dr. Jordan Peterson and also Dr. Andrew Huberman. The title of this video, episode 296 of Peterson's podcast, is Neuroscience Meets Psychology. This is three months old by this point, and I'm almost all the way through. I'm an hour and 24 minutes into the hour and 42 minute video. And it's fascinating. It's so great. It's super, super cool. And you can tell, even though they work in distinct fields, they study distinct subjects, psychology is not the same thing as neuroscience and vice versa. They recognize one another as being more generally of the same kind. And they recognize their work as being interconnected and highly interrelated. So there are questions that they have for each other that are genuine questions, not rhetorical questions. So what do you think of this? Okay, so do I understand you right here? And they're learning different ways of describing phenomena that they're both studying from different directions or from different angles. And in some cases, they're completing each other's sentences because, ah, okay, yes, I've seen that, but I call it this. Or we still don't know this, why certain results are found when this and that is the trigger. Oh, well, could it be that this, 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 and this? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. The point being, it's fascinating to see these two guys sit down and chat. And I see <laughs> I see their content show up pretty routinely when I go to YouTube to look for other things. I will see videos show up in the recommended for you category with Huberman's face on them or Peterson's face on them. I've never actually listened to anything, watched anything that had uh, Dr. Huberman in it, but he's, he's got some fascinating, fascinating things to share about neuroscience. But Peterson, I, I really enjoy what he has to say. I really respect him. I really admire what he's doing. That doesn't mean I always agree with what he's doing, what, what he's saying. I think he over-psychologizes. I think he's too much of a Jungian, as I understand it, with regards to the Bible. I think he, he makes it too metaphorical, too symbolic. But then on the other hand, and this is what I love, and I, I want to keep watching, and I want to watch him come to the realization that this is not just symbolic or metaphorical. Like This is for real. He would say, well, yeah, of course it's real. But what do we mean by that anyway? I'm listening to them talk back and forth, and I'm thinking to myself, it's so interesting that there have been so many people who've wanted to cancel or write off or marginalize Jordan Peterson. And why is that? Because he's communicating some challenging questions, and he's trying to reframe 
a number of pathological, <laughs> mentally ill ways of relating to ourselves and to one another that he sees. He sees in his clinical practice. He sees in his work as a professor. He sees in his speaking tours going around the world. He sees in himself even having had a bit of trouble with health and addiction, having since gotten out of that. He sees it, right? He's trying to speak to it and reframe and correct and challenge and confront like a man, by the way, because it takes guts to do that. Because what you might do is you might say, hey, what's going on over here? And because the answer is going to be, oh, well, nothing good. (laughs) We are up to no good. (laughs) We just skip straight to the part where the villain tries to bop the security guard over the head and drag him off scene, out of sight. And I think that's what's happened with guys like Jordan Peterson. And I think that's part of why, oftentimes, regardless of what the cultural Marxists want, what the feminists will say about the patriarchy, I think this is why endorsements by male athletes, male authors, male scientists go a lot farther. Why do I say that? In case it's not clear, because those men having testosterone, being physically larger and stronger and faster and more aggressive and more accepting and tolerant of risk by virtue of having testosterone, they are more willing to say, hey, wait a second, what's going on here before they endorse a product? And I think of having talked with my cousin Brent here last weekend. He and his wife, Natalie, stopped in. They were in Colorado to see a concert and to hang out and do some shopping, get away. And we got to talking about this 40-something-year-old BMX biker who lives, I think he said in California. I don't remember. But he does some crazy, smooth, fast, impressive tricks on his BMX bike in these little dry canals in California. And I'm talking with Brent. He's just showing me, you know, just randomly, hey, check this video out. Because he's a little bit ADD, just a little bit. God bless him. God love him. But he's telling me about this guy. He says, yeah, he's a Christian guy, and he's a big, big deal. He's been riding BMX for a long time. He's really good. And I don't know him personally, but I know people who know him or who are friends with him. I have We have mutual friends. He's like, yeah, he's a Christian guy. And I kid you not, he was offered, and I don't remember what the sponsorship was. It was like $100,000 a year or something to be a sponsor or a, um, oh, um, I guess, endorser. I guess Red Bull would have been his sponsor. He would have been endorsing Red Bull, nevertheless. He was offered a pretty good chunk of change to let Red Bull put their name and their logo on him so that they could settle Red Bull. And he said no. He said no. And do you know why he said no? Because he thinks Red Bull tastes disgusting. (laughs) That's gross. No, I can't endorse your product. I think it's gross. I can't do it. Hmm. Here's the thing. Men are typically, traditionally, historically, by virtue of having 
bigger, stronger, faster, more aggressive bodies by virtue of having testosterone, even in the womb, before culture can get to them, before social constructs and religion and politics and the education system can get to them, they get this testosterone bath in the brain. And it causes significant changes to the development of the male of our species versus the female of our species. And this is why males, men throughout history have been the leaders of their homes, of their communities, of their churches, of their cities, of their nations, because they are better suited to be the protectors against those who would do evil. They are better suited to be the protectors. Now, that doesn't mean that men need to be using their aggression, their strength, and their speed, and their agility all the time, because that's the thing, right? We wouldn't need men to be protective if there were not dangers posed by other men who have greater size, strength, aggression, but use it to prey on innocent men, women, and children. We wouldn't need men to be protectors. I mean, yeah, you could say, well, there's wild animals. Sure, sure. And most wild animals, in my experience, from a size to strength ratio standpoint, most wild animals are physically stronger. They have more force per cubic meter or cubic inch of body mass. And so what do you do? You say, okay, you know, my ideal is that like James Cameron, we have women who are six months pregnant, go out there in the wilderness. And I, I want to see that. I want to see six month pregnant women in their third trimester getting attacked by wild animals and trying to defend themselves. That's, that's what I want to see because we've got to abolish the patriarchy because we want equal opportunity. No, that's extraordinarily dumb. Not only does that go against what we know intuitively as men and women and human beings, unless it's trained out of us by Marxists, progressives, leftists, not only do we know that intuitively that's a bad idea, instinctively we know that's a bad idea, we can reason out what the outcome will be very easily. The human race needs men to be providers and protectors in a fallen world especially, because the man should be the one confronting the wild animal who is threatening the pregnant woman. And that's a large part of the reason for marriage, I'm sure, I'm convinced, because it's orderly, right? It's orderly. It's not this woman is going to take orders from all of the men in the world. That's insane. That's a recipe for absolute chaos, which we have increasingly. But in reading the Communist Manifesto this past week, that is something that Marx and Engels say directly, explicitly. Their plan and program, it's not very long. It was four hours. A good chunk of that was forward, not the work itself. But their plan and program was not just for economic redistribution. For those Christians who get sucked in and they think, well, okay, you know, there's communism in the New Testament. It says that, uh, you know, Christians had all things in common in Acts. And so, you know, communism can work. Did you know that there were points in early church history 
the first few centuries of church history, where some cults, some false teachers said, that's not just property, that's also wives, that's also families. We're going to just share in common our women because we've got to hold all things in common. And that was something that had to be rebuked and confronted and purged. Hey, what's going on over here? Hey, wait, what are you teaching? No, 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 no. That's not biblical. That's not godly. That's not what God said. That's not what God wants. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. No, you can't do that. Men were needed to correct error and false teaching and a misunderstanding, maybe even intentional twisting of the biblical text and what God had said to the end of protecting not just the church spiritually, but also physically, also emotionally, mentally. So I look at the idea of men making more than women do, and I think that's totally fine. I have no objections to that whatsoever. And it's funny, there was a point in Lauren's and my marriage early on, the first few years before I moved us to Montana and got into oil and gas, there was a point in our marriage where she actually made more money per hour than I did. She was an STNA. She worked for some nursing homes in the area. But as an STNA, compared to me being a billing clerk for a trucking company or a factory worker or a logistics broker or logistics broker's assistant, she made more money because there was more demand for the skills that she had than there was demand for the skills that I had. When I moved us to Montana and I got working in the oil and gas industry, then that changed drastically on my end of the equation because there weren't enough men. And you need men in particular, predominantly. I've encountered a few women in the oil and gas industry in the field, but usually they're administrative Usually they're accountants. Usually they are assistants. Usually they are engineers. I've seen that a number of times. Their father sent them to college. They got their engineering degree. Now they've got a really good paying job. But typically the female engineers, in my experience, are not going out to the field as much necessarily. Whereas odds are a lot higher that predominantly men out in the field are going to work their way up through the ranks by staying at it, by continuing to go do the dangerous job. Also, by being willing to ask, hey, what are you doing when something sketchy is about? And, and this, this is a recurring theme of safety training and all talk of stop work authority that you have to be willing to ask somebody what they're doing. If they're doing something unsafe, if you're sure that you're, you're sure that you're sure that this is just about to cause, could likely cause an accident, you have to be willing to say, stop, I'm calling stop work authority right now. And that might make the other person angry. They might threaten you. They might get absolutely worked up. They might be physically violent, in which case they got to get out of here. They're, they're gone. There's zero tolerance in the oil and gas industry among the established players, maybe in some mom and pops 
companies here and there, smaller companies. But in the bigger companies, there's absolutely no tolerance whatsoever for threats or violence or reprisals for exercising stop work authority. But even just the fact that the trainings have to tell everybody tell everybody that again and again and again, it just goes to show that you can have, one, men who are corrupt and they want to do things the easy way or they're proud or they're arrogant. They want to do things in a dangerous way and take unacceptable risks that are not necessary even to save time, to correct a mistake, to get ahead, whatever. Also, not only might they be corrupt, but they could be seized by their own immediate fear and panic that they're going to lose their ability to provide. They're going to lose their job if it turns out that they were doing something unsafe. And now they get fired. So there's a defensiveness that can come about very quickly. They can get worked up potentially if they're not told in no uncertain terms. You will be fired if you threaten or issue reprisals. It's not for no reason that that has to be told and that has to be said again and again and it has to be watched for. But the flip side is this is one of the reasons that men predominantly are going to be working in situations and environments where they not only have a danger from the equipment and the process, they also potentially have a danger from other men. Because the men who are going to ask the hard questions, hey, what are we doing here? Or even say, hey, stop, need to be big enough, strong enough, assertive enough, aggressive enough, confident enough, accepting enough of risk to follow through with what they've just said. If, hey, if I say stop, that means stop right now, stop it. And then the other person keeps on going, mm-hmm. okay. You either stop or I'm going to stop you. It might be the way that that goes. Not so much in an oil and gas industry context, because unless somebody's life is literally at stake, I don't see that being a scenario either, right? Just as much as there would be zero tolerance for somebody getting violent or threatening because they got questioned on whether what they were doing was safe. So also if Somebody who is double-checking on safety and call stop work got aggressive, then they too. They too would be out of there, I'm sure. But my point is, my point is that men have got to be willing to ask the hard questions and challenge. And if we lose that capacity to ask hard questions and to challenge, if that is taken from men, one thing is for absolute certain, we are at the mercy of the people who do the taking. And I don't trust them. The stronger they are, the wealthier they are, the more completely they can silence all dissent, all questioning, all disagreement, all debate, any divergent thought or opinion, the less I trust them and the less we should trust them. But we need men who are virtuous, who have a conscience, who have, yes, testosterone and masculinity to be able and willing to watch for and call out threats, dangerous situations. We need that. We need that. And it needs to start in the home. It needs to start in the neighborhood that you live in. It needs to start in the church that you attend, in the city you call home, in your state, 
in your country, that's where it starts. And ultimately, to know that we are protecting and not actually being tyrants or the worst enemy of the people we're supposed to be protecting, the way we can know is we go back to God's word and God's word tells us right from wrong, good from evil, wise from foolish, what kind of a mindset to be in. Also, God sets us the example in his being our provider, our protector, our strong tower. You know, just a quick word and then I've got to run. I am looking at the tab open on my computer here for the monk debates. And if you haven't checked out the monk debates, do, right? Do. Because for one, it just goes to show that people can be persuaded by reasoned arguments, but only if those reasoned arguments are made, only if we are taught to think critically and to cross-examine, will we develop that skill. Nobody's born with it. And also you shouldn't just assume it's naive to just assume that everything's going to work out. If you don't ask questions, if you don't read the fine print, if you don't consider both sides in a debate, a yes, no kind of a question is asked. If there are people who are willing to research and think deeply and articulate their positions over and against one another's claims and arguments publicly in a civil way, well, that is a great, great benefit. And we need that. And we need to not shut down when debates come up, immediately going into a fight or flight kind of a mode. I have more to say on this soon because it relates to an idea that is beginning to take shape for something to do here in our community in Greeley, Colorado. But I'm going to keep that under wraps for right now. It's still in its beginning stages. We'll see where it goes. For right now, I got to run. It's a Sunday morning. We got church to get to. Speaking of being protective, I'm on the security team this morning, so I need to be there nice and early. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. <laughs>